Hello out there. This is Brian Peterson, and I was having a hard time getting my volume turned off there. Uh, so, hey, this is Brian Peterson with All Bodies Outside, and today I'm excited to have Nick Hawks here. And Nick has just such a wide variety of background. He's done so much stuff. Um, I was just pulling a quick bio from the internet. He is uh, one thing that was pretty major. I think in the early 2000s, he served as a Navy SEAL um, or maybe the late 1990s. Um, he also has an extensive background in business, adventure, athletic challenges, and working with world-class athletes. But today, Nick, the two things that I am most excited to talk about with you are your paragliding adventures. And I want to hear extensively about deploying helium hotspots for building a decentralized wireless network. And you have a service called Gristle King in which you help others deploy this and with all the technicalities behind them. And you provide that knowledge to do this uh, in the way that is effective and helpful for society. So, hey, Nick, great to see you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, right on. Thanks for the intro. Good to see you. Yeah. Not too long. It's been quite a while. I feel like, uh, when, when was it that you did the Leadville 100? 2015 was the, well, that was when I completed it. The 2013 and 2014, I didn't finish it, but 2015, I think that's, that's probably when we met to maybe late 2014, uh, through the training and up to 2015. Yeah. Yeah. It was, Okay, so I was trying to put some time some time on it. So what I know <laughs> is that I moved away from San Diego in August of 2014. Um, and so you and I did some training for maybe about a year around there, right until probably I was leaving San Diego. Okay. Um, and uh, I remember talking about different ways with you're kind of playing around different types of nutritional yep. ways to keep your nutrition going during races and whatnot and kind of just yep. do another adventure. Oh, you were there for the, the year that I didn't finish it then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a year that you didn't finish it. But, you know, I think that's how it goes with those 100-mile races. Like, they're kind of a little bit experimental, you know, a first time, you know, to kind of yeah. see how everything shakes out. And then you're like, okay, I can adapt to that. This problem can be taken care of with this. This problem can be taken care of this. And it's kind of like you just got to get out there, see yeah. where the problems are, and mitigate them for the next time you do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. your story was cool with it. I mean, you obviously have a huge athletic background, but I don't think you had a background in ultra running and nope. you jumped right into it and figured it out, figured out how to manage your body through those stressful times, which you already had a big background with kind of understanding your body physiologically through athletic endeavors. Yeah. Um, but it was cool to see you kind of tackle that um, and not give up on it, go out there, give it a test run and then see what problems to fix. And you overcame that. So that was cool. It's good. Yeah, I got a lot of help from the local community. In fact, I'd say that the of all the communities I've been a part of, the ultra running community was probably, I don't know, like the nicest, the most welcoming. Uh, and I, I thought it was because unlike anything else or almost anything else out there, um, and certainly unlike anything else in the kind of civilian world, like you can't fake an ultra. Right. You can, and, and that's not to take anything away from people who run marathons, but you can like fall off the couch and hobble your way through a marathon and say that you did a marathon. Uh, I don't think you can do that with the hundred miler, uh, maybe with a 50 miler. I don't know. I, ne I never know one of those, but yeah, it just, it made for this group of people who were very respectful of the effort that everyone was putting into it. And that was a, a really cool group. And I, I missed that kind of welcoming aspect um, of being a part of that group. That was really cool. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great note that you just shared about the ultra running community. And that's something that I've seen in ultra different ultra running communities across the country. So I've now joined ultra running communities in San Diego, Boulder, Colorado, Salt Lake City, Clemson, South Carolina, where I'm at in Kansas now. We have a very small one. And 
Uh, it's always a great welcoming com uh, community. And I wonder if that has something to do with just you know, the, the magnitude of the challenge. And that just ends up, I think, bringing people together. They respect each other. They're working hard, doing this together. And there's, there's a camaraderie behind it that is, is really, really special. And I think one of the things, though, that I, I do like about ultra running is I feel like when I go to, and I don't do it that often, but if I go to a marathon and I look at the people running a marathon, they actually sometimes look more hardcore to me than ultra marathon runners. And ultra marathon runners just kind of look like these people that, uh, you know, they're, just, they're out there for the sport. They're not wearing all their flashy gear. And they kind of sometimes don't even look overly athletic and they get after it and they take it in such a great metaphor for life too. You know, they take it one kind of mile at a time, two miles at yeah. a time, bite-sized chunks. And sometimes I wonder if ultra marathons are actually more accessible than what people think. Cause I think yeah. people get scared by the number. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, you can still be a dirt bag. It, I think that's the, it's one of the last sports where, and maybe, maybe that's not totally true, but you can still just be like, Hey, I'm just going to put my human effort into this and, uh, and crank it out. And that's, yeah. that's it. You don't need all the fancy stuff. Like what, what I found kind of to my chagrin was that the fancy stuff didn't really matter is that you could have the coolest. I like, I was buying everything I could think of to buy and borrowing the rest of it that I couldn't afford. You know, the, the, what were they? The, um, pressure pants for the, you know, your legs that so you squeeze all the blood out oh, and get recovery. it back in, yeah. recovery stuff. I had these fancy little like mini computers I put on my shoes to track my stride, um, run scribe. I think they were called. I just looked at that company. They're still in business, which is really cool. I did, you know, the nice watch, the heart rate monitor, all that stuff. I was talking to everybody I could talk to at the end of the day, doesn't matter. You can either run a hundred miles or you can't. And, uh, some days, you know, even, it, there's even like kind of an element of luck to it, but none of those things, um, I would say, contributed in any like significant form to being able to do it. You just got to put in the miles and, and then do the time. Yeah, put so. in the miles, do the time, have the right mental mindset, right perspective. Yeah. And I agree with you. Um, so in, in my running trajectory, which started in second grade of elementary school and continues to this day at 40 years old, um, I went, I had a fantastic high school coach who got us really into the quantitative analysis of everything. We started wearing heart rate monitors and we had GPS watches. And so I went from first learning how to run in middle school, sorry, elementary school, middle school, and then high school, we got very quantitative with our understanding of our bodies. And I thought that was pretty cool for a little bit. It, it did help me as a runner understand myself, but I eventually transitioned fully away from all that technology. I don't wear a GPS watch to this day. I don't track my runs to this day. I just say, hey, I have an hour to go running right now. So I'm gonna go running for an hour and whatever the legs do, the legs do. And it, it tends to keep me the most motivated for running. Also just kind of keep running as a, a bit of a spiritual practice for me as well, where I can yeah. just, you know, go and check in with myself, disconnect from the cell phone, disconnect from life. And then it's just me and my mind. I can just do those really healthy check-ins of self-kindness. Yeah. No, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So, and so you've now gotten into, so, and I've seen this with some uh, runners in Salt Lake city as well, but the paragliding adventures, tell yeah. me about that. How does that work? Are you launching bipedally? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, it's it's funny. So I finished up 2015, finished Leadville. That had been the big goal. And I was just getting tired. I was getting get kind of worn down. I think um, I don't totally understand it, but some people seem like they can keep running into their 60s at, at rates that are just way beyond what, what I could do. But I was just getting out of bed every morning. My feet were hurting. My hips were hurting. My knees were hurting. And I was like, I, I really like being outside. I really like that running community. 
Um, it's really important to me to spend time outside as connected as I can be to, to nature. But running long distances, um, I could see that just wasn't great for me in the long term. And so after after 100, as you know, you kind of have maybe <laughs> you're a pretty good runner. Maybe it doesn't it takes you a little bit less time, but it took, you know, a month for me to, to come back and think about start running again. And during that month, I think my mom for my birthday, which is mid-September, the race is August. Uh, mid-August, mid to late August. So mid-September, she got me a, like a pass to the uh, local film festival. So my wife and I go to this local film festival and I saw there was a movie on paragliding and one of my buddies, funnily enough, in Salt Lake City, who's also a big time uh, climber and like way, you know, rad outdoors guy, had been a paraglider. And I talked to him about it. And I remember like, eh, you know, thinking that's it doesn't sound like my kind of gig. That sounds silly. But I saw this movie called Rocky Mountains Traverse. And I was like, oh, that's what my buddy Brad does. Rad, I'll go check that out. You know, we have all these, we have these tickets to these movies. And I went to it and I saw these guys, Gavin McClurg and Will Gadd, hiking up a mountain with backpacks that seemed pretty big, but I don't mind about, you know, I'm in a big backpack. Uh, and then they would unfold their paraglider at the top of the mountain, take off from it. And there, the whole movie was about how they did this, I think, 700 mile traverse from uh, way up north in Canada down to the U.S. border following the spine of the Rockies. Nice. And so they'd hike up to the top of the mountain, un unpack their glider, you know, pull it up over their heads, turn around, run off the mountain, catch thermals, glide, catch thermals, glide, catch thermals, glide all day, and then land at the end of the day somewhere up high, uh, camp for the night. So you're in these radical places that are really difficult to get to on foot. And then in the morning, you know, the movie made it seem like they just unpacked the gliders, flew off again, and, and kind of did that for 10 days straight. Um, and I was, I was hooked. I was like, that is the coolest thing I can think of. That is totally how I want to spend time in the mountains. That gives me access to being outside in and surrounded by nature, um, doing something that looks technically difficult. I've never really liked gear that much as far as having a ton of gear around me. So that was the only kind of downside, but I was like, I can get over that and, and get into it. And, uh, and I did, you know, I found a, you know, through the usual serendipitous turn of events. Uh, when you put your mind to something, I found someone locally who would teach me at the time. I didn't have a ton of ton of money. So uh, she taught me for free. And in fact, I bought my first glider from her with a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. And at the time, I think she sold it to me for 500 bucks. And I forget how much how much Ethereum that was, but we laugh about it because now that that is worth about $100,000. Um, so it's like, usually a glider is, you know, three to 5,000 bucks. She sold me this one 500. She kind of felt sorry for him. Like, Hey, can you take, can you take this crazy stuff? It's cryptocurrency. And she's like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take whatever. Like, I just want to help you learn. And if you feel like that's, you know, this has some value, great. I'll take it. And it launched her into this kind of trajectory into cryptocurrency and, and me into paragliding. And then eventually, uh, and we'll get back to this back to, back to cryptocurrency. Yeah. Yeah. What year was that? 20, 2015, 2016. I think I bought it. Wow. Yeah. I had not heard of cryptocurrency back then and uh, mm. I've been learning and whatnot, but uh, one of the questions I had that you brought up with paragliding was, um, okay, so how much does the pack weigh? And I, I immediately got this like idea in my head of like, man, it'd be so cool to go up on a ridge line up in Sierra Nevada and like paraglide and land in one place, camp there, then paraglide to another place and camp there. But is that feasible if you got to have also the big paragliding oh, yeah. backpack? Yeah, on? yeah. So that's a sub-discipline of the sport called vol biv, and it comes from the French vol to fly and bivy to camp. So it's fly camping is the translation, wow. but everyone in paragliding calls it vol biv. And that was the thing that hooked me. I was like, dude, that looks like the coolest thing ever. Um, you can certainly 
you know, there's this giant race called the, um, the Red Bull X Alps where they do this every other year. And that's, that's the whole race is your fly kind of fly camping, the whole thing. And there are different kind of sub disciplines of that sub discipline where you're out for a while, or maybe you're supported by other folks, but let's say that the pack, if you're spending kind of money and you're getting, getting really nice stuff, you can probably get the whole rig down to 20 pounds. And then you got to oh, carry wow. maybe, maybe 17 and a half. Then you got to carry water and food on top of that. So totally, totally doable mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to do an unsupportable biv. And I, I think, you know, you could, you could pretty easily knock out kind of a three to five day, no problem as you get beyond that. You know, you know, if you've done the backpack and once you get to 10, 15, 10 to 15 days, you're just really carrying a lot of extra stuff. That's right. That's, yeah. But for yeah, me, like I, that was the goal was to, to get into Volbiv. That was what I wanted to yeah. do. Yeah, no, I love it. And so Volbiv, I've never heard of this and I, I love the idea. And so one of the things that comes with Paragliding to me is just trying to understand the safety where there's some safety worries. Uh, for me, it seems like, gosh, like landing would be the hardest part. Uh, but yeah. maybe I'm wrong. I've never paraglided in my no. life. Um, so how do you know if you've never paraglided in your life, which you were at that point, at one point in your life, yep. um, how do you kind of make sure that you understand where to be cautious and how to handle yourself through these sure. uh, more challenging moments so that you're safe out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes down to luck and who, who teaches you. Um, I got really lucky. The lady who taught me, Wendy, Wendy Shuss, uh, also known as Pepper, um, was just like intensively um, protective of of her students, and so it was great. She's a former uh, EOD Navy EOD person, so uh, bomb disposal. So she had this like really intense side to her, and I loved it. It worked really well for me. If she was upset about something I was doing that was unsafe, she'd just yell at me, and I was just like, "Yeah, I, I get that. Like that's the language I understand." And she was. Um, you, know, you can't say ex- excessively because you can't be too safe, but she was really focused on making sure that I was safe. So the, the very general progression in paragliding is you start off with what's called kiting and you'll go out to a flat space where there's no mountain. You're not going to, you're not going to fly and you need a little bit of wind and you basically bring the wing up over your head. And so it's facing into the wind and then you practice staying under the wing. You practice kind of keeping it stable. Um, and that is a pretty safe way to, to learn the very basics of paragliding. Um, and that should be continued kind of to be practiced throughout your career as you go out and you kite and you make sure that you kind of get a feel for the wing in a really safe place. And that's, as you're learning more and more stuff, you learn how to spin the wing, how to collapse one side of it, how to get out of a collapse, how to do like do all the things that you need to do up in the air. You'd practice them as best you can on the ground first. And so I spent the first, I don't know, eight months, uh, kiting. Um, and that's, that's a longer time than usually, usually people spend a couple of weeks doing that, but, um, Wendy was just like, no, you're not going to fly. Like, I, I know you don't have the, the mindset to be able to keep yourself safe um, by yourself. So if you're not with me, you're not flying. You can kite as much as you want, but don't fly until until we're together and you're ready. So I kited about eight months and then went up to Oregon with her, um, and she started chucking me off a couple of small hills. And so the first flights are basically just a glide down. Um, I've got video of my first flight. It's like super exciting to, to go back and watch that. And it's an exciting thing to do. And then, then you make the progression. You start going from gliding off a hill to gliding a little bit longer to figuring out how you ride what's called ridge lift. So you've been to Torrey Pines. You see that the, the wind comes in, it hits the cliff. It goes straight up just like, um, like a, a standing wave in a river. And you basically just glide back and forth along the top edge of that wave at Torrey Pines. That's what they're doing. That's all, all ridge lift. And then, the next step in the progression is you go out in the mountains and you learn how to ride thermals and thermals are just packets of air that are warmer than the air surrounding them. So they go up. Um, if you've ever been out in the mountains and you've seen birds circling and going up without flapping their wings, they're in a thermal. 
And so we learn to, to kind of feel what that feels like to, to be in the right place at the right time. And that is kind of what you try and perfect for the, the rest of your career is, is riding, uh, finding and riding thermals. Um, and then it becomes this giant game of Frogger where you find a thermal, you go up in it. It's this invisible elevator in the sky. So it's all feel. And then you look for, once you get to the top of it, once your kind of rate of rise slows down or you decide to leave it or, or whatever the reason is, uh, you go looking for another one. So we call it like this giant invisible game of chess in the sky where you're constantly looking for the next place. It looks like it's going to trigger a thermal. That's that's the the progression. Wow, wow, wow. So what's the, the longest flight time you've had paragliding? Um, I don't really I don't feel like I've got a long endurance uh, threshold for paragliding. So I don't know, probably a couple hours, two hours, maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, so most of your flights are probably like, what, like 30 minutes to an hour? Yeah. And that's me. Like, I'm not the greatest paraglider. I, I went into it thinking I was going to be the greatest paraglider in the world and discovered that, um, that I wasn't, that there was other aspects to the sport that were really fun for me that were not kind of in line with being like, um, a, uh, like a rule pushing or a parameter pushing pilot. Like a, it's just not in the cards for me to, to, at least right now to be that guy that's like, I'm going to fly the longest and do the best, do the best or do yeah. the greatest tricks or whatever. Um, but the, the good paraglider pilots are, you know, they're in the hour or in the, in the hour, in the day for uh 10 hours, 12 hours. I think wow. the record in the U S is 250 might be 270 miles. Whoa. Um, so the, the good guys can and the good girls can go really far and stay up a long time and they're they're super impressive. But I've I've really come into I don't know kind of this part of the sport where um, I don't fly as much as I used to anymore because now it's it's twenty twenty two it's been seven years. Uh, that that hunger at the beginning that a lot of us have you know you get a new sport and you're just obsessed with it and I was obsessed for the first year or two and then had a couple accidents um, and also started kind of spending more time than I should have flying um and ran out of money at home and it's like look you you can't be a dirtbag at you know your late 30s uh with the with the wife and a house and kind of all the, the usual obligations so you got to get your get your shit together and and run a business and put the paragliding on the back burner and that's that's what i did so now i fly kind of once a week i'll fly 30 40 minutes maybe have a, a really nice um gentle evening glass off session is what we call it and uh enjoy my time in the mountains and, and that's usually what i do now Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, Nick, similar to you, I definitely am guilty of that newbie hunger. A lot of times with new endeavors that I do, I'll just get obsessed. I'll be like, I want to learn every facet of it. And then yep. a year or two later, I, I'm like on to the next thing. Um, and so sometimes when I start things, I'm like, okay, I want to do this for years. And it may not be even a physical endeavor. It might be like, hey, like I want to learn Python coding or something, yeah. um, something for my mind. Yep. Um, and I'll be like, right. okay, man, I'm so jazzed to take all these courses on Udemy. I'm going to take one class per every two weeks or oh, something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'll eventually will like, you know, kind of slow down on being obsessed and my newbie hunger will not be as hungry. Yep. Um, and so I oftentimes I have to sit there and be like, gosh, like, okay, if I'm going to do this. I need to make sure I look at long-term consistency with stuff because yeah. I am definitely known to be the same way with just getting really excited for stuff. Yeah. Um, but also, hey, you mentioned that you also, you did crash a couple times. How bad were those crashes? Uh, I mean, I never went to the hospital, um, but they were pretty bad. They were, they were beginner errors. And that's a lot of what, I mean, most of the crashes in, I guess, in any sport, um, especially in paragliding are just like, you're dealing with kind of unpredictable nature. And you're also dealing with, with people who have that, that thought that they can figure all this stuff out. Like that's what draws them to paragliding is that this, this giant invisible challenge in the sky, and most of us are, especially at the beginning, are way more confident or cocky 
uh, and we should be. And that was, that was me. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, uh, three, three crashes inside a year. And at the time I was being super public with paragliding and I was talking on, I ended up meeting the guy, Gavin McClurg, um, who'd been in the, the video that, the, yeah, the movie that inspired me to get into it. And we did a couple podcast episodes together cause he nice. was, he was like a longtime paraglider pilot and he was psyched that I was psyched as a beginner pilot. And so we had this kind of series of, of episodes that we did together where it's like, what's it like to be a beginner? And I think after the second or third of those, he started getting calls from the audience that were like, dude, you got to slow that guy down. He's going to kill himself. Like that guy's an idiot. Um, you know, where should I send like flowers to his family kind of stuff? Just cause the way I was talking and, and approaching the sport, um, despite the, the kind of safety that Wendy had tried to drum into me. And I had thought, you know, just being uh, arrogant, like, oh, that stuff's not going to happen to me. And then it did, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, you fall out of the sky with your wing kind of collapsed above you and you don't have the skills to fix it. And I just got super, super lucky. Uh, the first mm-hmm. time I hit the ground on like a really steep, sandy slope, um, I should have thrown my reserve. I didn't. It's like all the stuff where, you know, any pilot listening to this is like, God, that guy is an idiot. Like, yeah, 100%. That's true. Um, I did not, did not do a good job of of kind of keeping myself safe. I just got super lucky. Uh, second time I was close to the ground, spun the glider and, and just came in harder than normal. Um, scared, scared the people watching it. And then the third time, uh, I turned too close to the ground and that was a time I got a, a pretty bad concussion. And the way I landed, I came in right between these two boulders, super hard. And if I had been a foot to the left or the right, um, either like shattered legs or shattered spine or smashed head and dead. And after that, like I got up from that and walked away, um, had a bad concussion, but kind of outwardly was fine. And that was the thing that was like, dude, stop being an idiot. Like you got a lot to live for. There's a lot to do still with your life. Um, the way you're pursuing this is, is dumb. And so from then on, like I really backed off and I started, I was, I was scared flying. Uh, for a long time and still like for big days, I'll be like, no, I'm, I'm not interested in that kind of, um, <laughs> in that kind of exposure to risk. So I just, I just backed off, but I think it's a pretty typical story in, in paragliding is it's uh super, super hazardous. If you get it wrong, right? The consequences are high. Yeah. It sounds like the consequences can be real high. So it, it's a sport that everyone's wearing helmets and everyone has a reserve parachute. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, if you don't wear a helmet, it's, it's exceptional. And most of the people on the Hill, um, will come up to you and be like, dude, you should be wearing a helmet. Um, you'll get a lot of flack for not doing it. So there's a a couple kind of cowboys out there that think it's super cool, but, um, it's a stupid thing. So. Yeah. 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 So let's, let's transition this from paragliding. How, you know, with paragliding, you got to know the local weather conditions and whatnot. And one way that you can learn, that really localized micro weather conditions for the top of the hill at Torrey Pines or whatever, helium hotspots can help with that, right? If you have the correct sensors out there. So let's learn about helium hotspots today. I spent about a couple hours preparing for this conversation today, and I still got all kinds of great questions. But one of the things that Nick is doing is he is providing a service with uh, as Gristle King that helps with deploying these hotspots, which is doing a really great thing for society. So Nick, first off, let's just talk about the broad here. What are you doing with Gristle King? What's the service you're offering that's helping get these hotspots deployed? Sure. Actually, the, I'll start the story with paragliding. It'll it'll segue into it nicely. So um, let's see. It's August of, geez, 2020, 2019. I forget which. 
and a paraglider in the community disappears. Um, there's only about 5,000 pilots in the U.S. There's 100,000 in Europe, but in the U.S. there's only about 5,000. There's probably a couple hundred of us that are active pilots who are kind of flying and, and what, you know, what you call getting after it. And at the time, that's where I was. And this guy disappeared at 14,000 feet over the skies of Nevada. He was a well-known paraglider in the community. Our community rallied. There's a ton of engineers in the, in the paragliding community. And so all of a sudden, we had hundreds of people looking for this guy. And there's all these engineers who are, you know, working for NASA, working for some government thing, working for Google. And they weren't, I can't say they were rerouting satellites, but we were getting super fresh satellite imagery of this whole swath of area he'd landed. Um, I flew up with a buddy in his private plane to go join the search and rescue effort. There was hunters, hikers, bikers, ATV people, you know, everything was up there looking for this guy, helicopters, planes. Um, took 30 days to find him. You know, we didn't find wow. him when we went up for the three days that I went up. He was dead when he hit the ground, so it didn't matter to him, but pretty tragic for his family. And it got me and, and a bunch of other paragliders thinking, okay, this guy had a GPS on him. He had uh, the backup, which is a cell phone. Like, how can you get lost in America in the lower 48 with a GPS and a cell phone? We thought you couldn't, uh, but it turns out you can. So uh, me and, a, you know, that kind of paragliding community was like, all right, what, what's our... Now, what's the fancy way to say it? Now, what's our tertiary geolocation option? What's the third way you get found? And I stumbled on this thing called LORA, L-O-R-A, for Long Range Radio Protocol. And, you know, kept looking into that. And at the time, there was this uh, really still pretty small project called Helium that was a blockchain project that was incentivizing or rewarding people for putting out these Helium hotspots or radios that provided LORA coverage. And so the idea was that you could put a hotspot on a mountain, um, or anywhere, and it would provide this bubble of coverage around it that extended beyond where a cell phone could go, just because cell phone signals don't, don't go that don't go that far, and your cell phone battery runs out pretty quickly. Um, anyone who's been outside for a couple of days knows that after about a day, your your phone is cooked. Um, so you need something that's got a, a super long battery life. So this kind of LoRa long range radio and helium thing intersected. And I came into it at this incredibly fortuitous time um, when there's only about 7,000 of these hotspots on the network uh, and you were getting really high rewards. So I looked around and the token rewards at the time were about $3,000 a month and the miner cost about 400 bucks. Now this is like at the kind of run up to the great uh, summer of 20, what is it, 21, 2020, whatever it was, um, where crypto just went insane. So I just got super lucky to find it at this time. And because the community of Helium was still pretty small, no one was really writing about it. And so I, you know, the same kind of beginner's enthusiasm, I brought that to Helium and saw that, okay, you can put this radio up and you earn rewards, but if you put the antenna up higher and you get a better antenna and you have a better position than anyone else, you'll earn way more. Mm. And so I was like, well, I can totally do that. So I put up a, you know, 23 foot pole on top of my house and put up a giant antenna on top of that. And it was, it was earning super well. And then I got into this thing of putting these hot, hot spots, what's called off grid. So all helium hotspots have to be connected to the internet to send the signals that they're collecting through LoRa back to the kind of bigger world. Um, in order to be connected to the internet, they have to you know have some connection. Most of the time, it's just your Ethernet cable, your local Wi-Fi. But I found out a way to do it through a, what's called a cell modem, which is basically like a think of it like a, a phone that's dedicated just to that hotspot. And I started putting these helium hotspots out on top of mountains and providing hundreds of miles of coverage. And because Hotspots were earning so much. It had this really high earning potential. And I was writing about it because um, my friends and family were like, dude, what are you doing 25 hours a day on this helium crap? Um, like, what, what is it? What's going on? All the rest of it. So I had to explain it and say, look, this is it's a radio that provides this coverage. You get rewarded with tokens. 
I wrote a blog post about it and no one else is writing about it. Um, and so I started getting, I put on my, at the time, my personal blog, the old kick 13 KYK one, three.com just like, and sent out this email to friends and family. Like, here's what I'm doing. Like, don't worry about calling and asking, but just read this thing. And, uh, and the internet found it, uh, Reddit found it. And my phone started blowing up. I used to have my phone number on the website. And so I'd get these calls at like nine o'clock at night. My favorite one is this, this uh, I don't know, Russian, maybe Ukrainian dude in, in New York, but heavy, what I would call a Russian accent. Like, hello, I have some questions for you about helium. So, you know, I'm taking that phone call in my truck and, you know, at nine o'clock at night and talking through the whole helium thing and how he can build out the hotspots. And um, I think it was in Buffalo. It might have been somewhere else. Um, and then I was like, dude, not only I, but my wife, Lee, was like, hey, you're spending a lot of time on this. Uh, our other business, Paleo Treats, is suffering because you're not putting any time into that. You either got to start making money or quit doing it and come back and, and you know, be an adult and, <laughs> and contribute to our partnership. Um, and so I started charging for consulting and built this, you know, the, the question then is like, oh, what are you going to call the business? And I kind of came of age uh, – around these guys who are like, I was always, they were all like, all these guys were like super muscly, badass dudes. And I was like the grisly little, little dude. And I was like, I'm going to be the king of this space. So I was like, oh, I'll be the gristle king. <laughs> and that's it. how the gristle king name came about, um, built this consulting business. And at the peak of it, it was just batshit crazy. Um, it was like, I was having meals delivered to the house and having like Lee make tea. Cause I was on the zoom all the time doing these consulting calls eight hours a day and wow. making, making, you know, more money than I'd seen in my life before. And wow. then, you know, then crypto kind of, uh, not kind of crypto tanks, um, the consulting kind of pressure goes away. And I had seen that coming for a long time because it, it was just pretty straightforward. If you can do the, do the math, the size of the rewards pie doesn't change. More and more people are piling in because they all want a piece of that. The slices get smaller and smaller. And at the end of the day, you're, you know, you don't get rewarded very much in crypto um, for putting up a hotspot. And so the, the obvious transition is like, hey, how do we use this network? And I got into it for paragliding. And so I bought a bunch of these trackers and started putting them on my buddies and putting the hotspots up high in mountains and tracking them and wrote a couple of blog posts about that. And then from there kind of went into, I'm jumping around a little bit and fast forwarding a lot, but at this point, kind of late 2022 is helping other projects that are following in the footsteps of Helium in the greater what's called blockchain and meat space. So where kind of the blockchain interacts with the real world or, or the meat space helping them avoid the mistakes that um, Helium made because Helium was the first one. It's the biggest, but you know, if you're the first, you always make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then also teaching people how to use the sensors. So, you know, whether you're doing um, tracking cars or like I've got this big micro meteorology project planned for 2023 in the local valley where funnily enough, I paraglide um, using the Helium network is kind of the next big thing. So that's, that's my life. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Okay. So let's connect that over to my life. Okay. So, yeah. As uh, a researcher of parks and protected areas, one of the things that's always common to know is how many people use this trail, how many people are in this parking lot, how many people use this forest. Yep. And um, I also track flights above national parks. So uh, three types of data that I put out there is I put out infrared trail counters, see how many people are walking across the trail. It just shoots an infrared beam out. If the infrared beam is blocked by a heat source, such as a body, you get a count of one. Okay. Yep. I also put out game cameras, but, um, that are made for game for hunting game and whatnot made by like Moultrie. Um, we like to call them human behavior cameras since we're using them to just kind of see what types of behaviors people are exhibiting at campgrounds and stuff like that, yeah, yeah. or even in parking lots. <laughs> yep. Um, and then the third type of data that I uh, play around a lot with and analyze a lot 
is um, automatic dependent surveillance broadcast data. So this stands for that is ADSB, very yep. jargony, and I don't know how familiar you are with it. It's a kind of a more recent technology mm -hmm. and it's replacing radar. Aircraft have it in them. And essentially yep. aircraft have an ADSB system inside their uh, cockpit. They're connected to the satellite navigation system. So they get all that great GPS information. And then they transmit that out via a radio signal to other aircraft to say, hey, this is where I'm at. This is my latitude. This is my longitude. This is my vertical velocity. This is my horizontal velocity. So, to, and those radio signals that are beamed out are publicly accessible and non-encrypted. Yep. And so I will set up um, ADSB data loggers in national parks to see what the flights are above the national parks. Now, with all three of these data sources, with infrared shell counters, human behavior cameras, and ADSB data loggers, it's a lot of fun going out in the field and deploying them. You're like, great. But then yeah. they kind of got to get checked regularly because they need uh, check of the, how the data is doing and other things. And so I was wondering if with some of these loggers that we put out there, whether it's trail counters, human behavior cameras, or ADSB loggers, if we connected it to something like a helium hotspot, could that help us not revisit those places as much where we would we be able to get that information um, over to our computer, say in Kansas where I'm at. Um, and for, for example, right now, I actually have uh, 12 trail counters deployed in California. I have four in the Los Padres National Forest, four in the Angeles, four in San Bernardino, and four in the Cleveland National Forest. And so as you're explaining helium hotspots, I was like, I wonder if that could help my research and save me money and time. Yeah. So in a, uh, a funny, and I swear to God, we did not plan this uh, twist of events, one of the projects I did in 2022 was trail counters with helium. So uh, the helium foundation, so all of these crypto blockchain projects usually have like the, the kind of active side that's trying to make money. And then they have what's a foundation side, which is kind of like the nonprofit side that's helping people use it. So whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana or helium, they'll have you know one side that's the active side, which in helium's case is called Nova, and then they'll have the helium foundation. So the foundation was looking for, they've got a fund for grants and they were looking for people to show other folks how to use Helium. And so I wrote this grant for people counters. Um, I bought 10 of them from a company called Parametric in Switzerland, they're LiDAR counters. Yeah. And I had put this project together with the El Cajon Mountain Trail. Um, I talked to the rangers on there because I'd met them and said, look, I will, I will get all the money. I will do all the work. I'll do everything. All I need is permission to put people counters on the trail. I'm on that trail a lot. Um, the goal this year is to, to hike that thing once a week, but I'm, I'm on there a fair amount. Um, it's a know, like 10 mile round trip trail, a couple thousand feet of gain. It's like one of the more difficult trails in San Diego, but it's a really beautiful place to be. And I've seen, and I've helped people, I've helped rescue people. I've seen people get rescued off by helicopters. Like I know there's a problem out there. So it's like, okay, what you guys need is trail counters to, start putting data on this thing. So I talked to the Rangers, they're psyched on it. They're like, that sounds awesome. You're gonna do all the work, do all the money. Like, yeah, just tell us where you wanna put them. So I get the grant, buy these things. They're a thousand bucks a piece, uh, like super high-end Swiss badass trail counters. And go back to the county and say like, hey, I just got them in, you know, the shipment just arrived. Let's finalize these locations. And they, and they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, the city of San Diego has just put a moratorium on any kind of surveillance technology. And we think this is close enough that we don't want to touch it. So you can't do any of your trail counter mm. stuff on our trails. So I had these 10 trail counters. Um, they turn out to be fairly difficult to use just because the, 
the Swiss company doesn't believe that helium is, is really that real. And so they haven't written what are called decoders for the trail counters. And it got like way more technical than anyone would be interested in listening to. Um, but it's taken six or seven months to get them to the point where they can be deployed. But they're solar powered trail counters. They can be out indefinitely because they're solar powered. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I've got four or five of them left. So if you want to work on a project together with them, I'd be happy to come out there and put these things in or wherever you want to put them in. Um, but yeah, that's what helium is for is you put out a hotspot, the hotspot can cover depending on the sensor. So in this case, the sensor is a trail, uh, specific trail counter, but on my desk behind me, in fact, you can probably, if you knew what the fuzzy things were, you'd see more trail counters back there. Um, I've got a camera one from a company called Seed that just does AI processing on the actual trail counter and then sends back, you know, how many people came by. So it's uh, sort of privacy oriented, but yeah, that's what helium does is, is you figure out what the sensor is and then you put up a hotspot to provide coverage. And then because the sensors have super long battery life, anywhere from one to 10 years in the field, um, you don't have to visit them. So that's the deal. Nice. Nice. I love that. Okay. So you had parametric trail counters I've used, uh, from a Canadian company, they're called traffics, uh, T R A F X, uh, okay. trail counters. Um, and, uh, we actually had to go retrieve one in Santa Barbara recently. Someone, so these are only, they don't have a camera attachment. They have an infrared scope and that's it. So they yep. have an infrared scope, a cable to the unit. The unit has um, just a little bit of a hard drive in there, stores uh, data. And then I end up downloading that data as a .txt file. And okay. it's, it's, it's just number of counts per an hour. Well, anyways, the one that was deployed in Santa Barbara was on a, a very high use trail. And that makes a good place to put a trail counter so that we know how many people are using that trail on weekday mornings and weekend mornings and yep. weekend afternoons and weekday afternoons and holidays and whatnot. And oh, yeah. we always got to get permission with this stuff because it's for research. Like, and just like you said, you know, you got to go get permission for it. We had the permission. We actually brought the manager of that force with us, deployed it with him. Well, a couple weeks later, that uh, and that trail counter, we hit it in some rocks and we just had the scope barely sticking out of the rocks, but we camouflaged it the best we could. And we were all giving ourselves high fives that we camouflaged it really well. And we did a good job. Um, and about two weeks later, I get these, um, a slew, um, and se sequentially from a phone number calling me with no user ID. And it turns out it's the Santa Barbara police department. And <laughs> they thought the trail counter was a bomb. So it wasn't that they thought it was a bomb. It was called in as a bomb. Sure. And so they had to bring out all the authorities and, you know, that's, that's a serious thing, serious thing. And so they had to bring out all the authorities, double check. That's not a, uh, a bomb. Well, as I mentioned, it has the scope, the cable, and then the unit and on the unit, because it's for research purposes, like I have my, uh, work email on there. I even also had my cell phone number on there and says, Hey, if this unit is uncovered, um, you know, give us an email or call us. And also it's for research. So don't worry about it. Um, and so all that identifying information of Brian Peterson is on that troll counter. And it's still yeah. uh, what's called in as a bomb scare, which was pretty wild. Yeah. That's, that's how they go. Not cool. Let's, let's talk people counters off the call, but yeah, that's, that's totally one of the projects I've been doing. There's a, a lot of stuff, um, going on with that. And it's a, it's an exciting thing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. So another exciting application though that I really liked a lot about helium uh, and due to where I'm living right now, because I live in uh, rural Kansas, I am located about an hour and a half west of Kansas City. And there's a larger college town nearby about 20 minutes away called Manhattan, Kansas. Um, and we refer to Manhattan, Kansas as the little apple opposed to the big apple. And I live outside of Manhattan by about 20 minutes in a little 5,000 person town. And we have 
farmland in every direction. And um, one of the things that I was thinking with helium was how useful that could be if you are a farmer and you're putting out different sensors for, I don't know, water levels, some other stuff. Um, And I was like, gosh, these helium hotspots would be really helpful with farming. And has that been, have helium hotspots, hotspots been used to help with farming? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is kind of their their thing. So there's a bunch of different applications for LoRa. And to be super clear, like one of the things with helium that that stops it a lot, um, it was really, really, you know, great for growing it was that it's uh, associated with crypto. And so as soon as anyone hears it, like, oh, this is crypto, and you're going to earn crypto for putting in the hotspot, they, you know, they either want a piece of it, or they're like, no, I don't want to touch this thing, it's going to infect my network or whatever it is that they think. And so they're kind of ups and ups and downs to this thing. But um, what it uses is this radio protocol called LoRa. And you can do that on Helium. You can do that with a, any different network. You can do that with the Things Network, with ChirpStack, with a bunch of different um, things. But fundamentally, what you've got is the ability to transmit really small pieces of data for really long distances at a really low energy cost. And so that data, it can be soil moisture, it can be wind speed, wind direction, temperature, relative humidity, altitude, um, GPS coordinates, like all of these things are a super small piece of data. And in some cases uh, with paragliders, I think we made an 80 kilometer shot between a hotspot and a, a tracker on a paraglider up in Utah at a paragliding race I was tracking wow. two years ago, year ago. Um, yeah, so that, that like that's what they're for. A lot of the stuff, as, as you've probably seen, is that super fun to deploy the sensors, but then you've yes. got to make sense of the data. Um, not only do you have to collect it, which it sounds like in your case, you've got to go out and physically pull a card off of it and then read that card. Uh, you can avoid that part with helium because it basically sends all of the data back to the sensor. We'll send it back to a hotspot. The hotspot is connected to the internet, um, and the internet once it's on there, you send it anywhere in the world. Um, but yeah, that's 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 kind of what it what it uh, what it does. And those sensors can be in the field for a long time. Yeah. So and I mean, it's it's so great to have objective data to help us with our decision making. And so I got to imagine you have a lot of ideas spinning around in your head for ways to use probably helium hotspots to help other people get the data they need to make informed decision making. And um, is that a direction that Gristle King is going? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's interesting parts to this. So the in this kind of IoT world, you know, you got to, I've got to approach this stuff as a business. I got a mortgage to pay, you know, like this is kind of what I do. Um, so when you're approaching things as a business, you got to look for like, where do I get the most bang for my buck? So for Gristle King, most of the work I do is consulting with other companies. That's where I get the kind of most bang for my buck. And that's super fun. I love helping people kind of figure things out in that realm. Um, what is super engaging for me personally is to figure out these sensors and then figure out how to kind of use them to help whoever do whatever it is they want. And so the the big kind of micrometeorology project this year is it probably won't be a big moneymaker, but it'll be a ton of fun is we see, you know, conceptually paragliders know that, um, I'll get back to paragliding. Uh, we know that as a thermal goes up in the air, so it's, it starts off as like a hot parcel of air that comes off the ground. As it goes up, it expands, it gets lighter. At some point it cools down in the atmosphere and it stops going up. Um, and that, that change in temperature is called of the outside temperature around that parcel of air. It's called the lapse rate. All the paraglider, you know, every paraglider, every pilot knows um, that, the higher the lapse rate, the kind of more unstable the air is, that's the rowdier the thermals, but the higher you can go. But we don't have a way to measure that locally. And so 
this project is like, okay, in this valley that I fly in, it's about this, the whole valley is probably 20 square miles and surrounding is about 50 square miles is we can put a bunch of sensors at different altitudes on the land and start to see what the lapse rate actually is. And then plug that into the theoretical calculations and say, okay, well, this is what kind of day we should have. And if we get it granular enough, we can also do something that I don't think has been done before, which is to put a bunch of sensors out there that allow you to see basically a thermal kind of uh, marching up the hill and beginning to release. So as you see the temperature change over time, you can see like, okay, here's here's this thing coming. And you can basically, like um, in surfing, you can call the set of the day or you can call the wave of the day. And so that's kind of like the plan is like, okay, how do I figure out how to call the thermal of the day and let everybody know who's flying all around this, like this little fishbowl is like, hey guys, big one's coming. Um, and the good guys will catch it kind of no matter what, because they're good, they know how to fly, they know how to do it. But this could be a super cool tool in this really like financially uh, unprofitable place, place, but that's also super engaging and interesting to me of being able to tell a student like, hey, there's a thermal coming. I'm going to tell you where to be, you know, when, and you'll get to experience, you know, what it's like to be in one of those things. So that's kind of the, the cool little project that's all enabled by, by the helium stuff. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And who doesn't want to catch the big one for the day too and have that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of modeling behind that to predict it. You got, you know, real-time yeah. data coming through that lets you know um, about that lapse rate. Is that, did I say that right? Lapse rate? Yeah. 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 yeah that's, uh, gosh, yeah, I feel like the, honestly, the possibilities for the application of helium hotspots, when you're just starting to think about connecting up sensors, um, yeah. I feel like the possibilities are, you know, pretty much predicated on the imagination. Uh, yeah. like there's just a lot that can be done out there, which is really cool now with, um, so when I use not to, um, get into, you know, my data too much, but when I use it, it also luckily comes with some software that I can analyze it and put together. And essentially the software, what it does on the background is just querying different time scales. And it yep. says like, Hey, like, you know, like, you know, let's go back to trail cameras. How many people were there during, uh, the last like quarter of the year or whatever. And so you're querying for that temporal time scale. Um, and then it will pop out some histograms or pie charts or whatever percentages yep. of people per each day or day of the week or something like that. And so my mind is, is honestly like right now, just like in brainstorming process with using the helium hotspots with specific sensors and then being able to have data that pops out. That's easy, intuitive to understand, put some cool visualizations out there for the user. And oh my gosh, like, I feel like you got some, a lot of possibilities for business models there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, a lot, I mean, that's the this greater kind of IoT or Internet of, Internet of Things promise is that to me it, it feels a lot like, it's um, the best way to explain this. If, if we go back 10,000 years and you talked, you know, you were able to talk to humans and they had this really deep understanding with their, the, the part of the land that they were on. Um, they knew where the, you know, the rabbit was, they knew where the fox slept, they knew where to gather the right food and when the water was, you know, good for drinking and, where the hot springs were and like, you know, what, what part of the hill to camp on to, you know, make sure you didn't freeze at night, all those things they knew in ways that we don't have that granularity of information anymore. Cause we don't spend a lot of time outside anymore. Um, and the, the kind of drawback, although they wouldn't have seen it as that, and it's kind of the arguable thing is that they couldn't transfer that information to anyone else on the planet. Right. So some uh, badass indigenous person in San Diego, um, a couldn't couldn't take their information about San Diego and transmit it to Siberia, 
um, physically, like they'd have to walk there and tell them all about San Diego and then it wouldn't be applicable. But with, with IOT, what's happening is that we're able to put a ton of these sensors out there. And because those sensors send their information onto the internet, now everybody has access to it. And not quite the same granularity or understanding exists yet, but it's coming. And that is the super exciting part about all of this is that we are beginning to kind of re-understand our world in a way that, that we haven't been able to do as humans um, because of the pressures of modern society for you know a couple hundred years. And we're kind of re-entering this period where not only will we have access to that kind of information and start to build that kind of understanding, but that understanding will be diffused throughout, throughout humanity. And hopefully um, we use that to not trash the planet and to make this place way better for all of us. That's the, that's the great hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love having that access to data um, and maybe affordable data too. Data should be affordable in my um yeah, I think data should be affordable. And there are some data sources that I purchase that are astronomically expensive. Um, like I will buy, uh, say I wanna use mobile phone data to understand how many people are visiting a national park. And I can look at the whole national park. I can look at different trailheads or different trails or different mountaintops. Um, sometimes that can cost like 18 to $20,000 for that mobile phone data. And it's just like, oh my gosh. And like, it's, it's coming from a grant and you know, the grant, everything's double checked. A team of researchers are using the money. It's, it's, it's looked at by a team of people that put the grant together and are issuing that budget. But my gosh, I'm like, this is mobile phone data. And like, you know, we're paying for a company essentially to um, take in that data, make it anonymous. So we can't identify where Nick Hawks lives or that it is Nick Hawks paragliding yeah. on top of this mountain here. Um, but that's all algorithmically, algorithmically done. You know, it doesn't, I don't feel like it's something that, you know, there's all that money behind it. And so anyways, hopefully this, that you're talking about making data more accessible and hopefully more affordable to help people make, you know, good decisions and whatnot, inform their decisions. Cause I think buying mobile phone data for $20,000 is pretty high end. What do you think? Were you shaking your head being like, Brian, you're crazy. Or are you being like, Brian? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, well, look, there's two parts of it. Number one is, um, it's, it's kind of an odd position because I, I love the environment. I'm a super kind of nature hippie guy, and I'm also a businessman and I love making money. I think it's like a really fun game to play. And then when you get it right, it makes your life a little bit more enjoyable. Um, so I see that side where like, Hey, if they can get away with charging 20 grand for it, like that's pretty cool. It sounds like a fun business. Um, but there's the other side where as part of getting into helium, I got connected to groups of folks who are engineers and, and geeks and hackers and, the thing you're describing, uh, collecting mobile phone data, is you can do that for 30 bucks um, with the right technology, and you can put that on Helium. So you, you basically buy this little sniffer that's, that, that identifies um, how many devices, uh, the MAC address from a device, are in the area. And so it can say, like, oh, yeah, there's 30 phones hovering around me right now, so there's 30 people here. Um, that's pretty easy to do. You can find that stuff on the Internet. So, like, the... You know, I, I see both sides of it where it's like, oh, you can spend a lot less money um, and you you may have to, you probably will have to deal with the privacy piece to that, but I'm sure there's a way to anonymize that information. But I think mm -hmm. that's the exciting thing is that we kind of go from like, do you spend 20 grand or you spend 30 bucks? Like, that's your choice. You decide what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, if, yeah. you know, obviously if they're charging that amount of money, you know, there's a demand, right? Like you said. Um, and yeah, I, I like this this juxtaposition that is Nick Hoxa with the nature stuff and also being an entrepreneur. And I think that 
uh, my eyes really got opened to entrepreneurship during COVID. And it seemed like just this, like, all of a sudden it was like, my gosh, like entrepreneurship is so accessible. There's so many like just cool ways that you can make money now off the internet or doing whatever. And it's like, I've gotten really excited about entrepreneurship. And I think entrepreneurship used to be something that almost felt like people didn't like to say, Hey, I'm an entrepreneur. And now it's almost like trending. It's cool. People got yeah, side yeah. hustles and they're doing all this stuff. They got podcasts, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. <laughs> I've actually really, really enjoyed the game of entrepreneurship and all of the, the possibilities right now. I love hearing stories of say Mr. Beast out there. I don't know if you follow Mr. Yeah. Beast. Oh, I don't yeah. follow him, but I love his story. Yeah. I love that he's doing like YouTube philanthropy. Uh, and I think it's just so cool. Like he's doing challenges that are hard, but he, he wants to help people and whatnot. And I love that philanthropy aspect of it. Um, but yeah, you've been an entrepreneur for probably almost two decades. Yeah. 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 Since, uh, geez, one of the first companies probably Oh four. So now we're wow. in 2022. So almost two decades. Okay. Yeah, I've been uh, dipping my toes in. My wife and I started a, a little company here called Backyard Backcountry, uh, which we're kind of delivering. We're trying to help people get outside more, but keep yep. it really convenient and elegant and luxurious for them. Uh, we're trying to uh, – I love being in nature. I love roughing it. That's my, my way of yeah. going about nature. But not everyone yeah. wants to rough it. And for those that don't want to rough it, they shouldn't be prevented – from getting all the benefits of being out in nature, yeah. you know, mentally speaking, physiologically speaking. And so the point of the uh, business is to help people get out in nature a little bit easier. And so that was actually my first foray into entrepreneurship. We just launched uh, this past October and uh, we launched right before winter got going because our business, we figured winter time will give us time to prepare for the spring or hoping to have yeah. business and whatnot. But um, entrepreneurship, I have found a lot of joy in. And I love learning about stuff. And I think that is not, I think, I know that was something that I was really curious today to talk to you about was Crystal King. I love that when we were texting, I don't know, two weeks ago or something that you shot me this. And I was like, heck yeah, dude. Like Nick's always up to something. And I remember, gosh, back in the day and uh, probably like 2014, 2013, remember me, you and Greg used to get together and talk about doing an app. That the run was thing, yeah. Pretty much similar to what Strava had going on, you know, and yep. um, I don't think Strava was prominent at all. I don't think I'd heard of Strava at the time. It maybe had, you know, gotten going, um, but you're always brainstorming some new ideas, which I love, which I think is really cool. And I'm excited yeah. to see what's next for Nick Hawks. You're always up to just playing the game and, you know, having fun with it. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, having, having a ton of fun. I think that's the important thing is just like balancing it all out. And I was, I was talking to, uh, I just sent out our annual Christmas letter for 2020, 2022. And we had this, this crazy year um, where we had like months where we had tons of money and months where we had almost nothing. And like, that's been my life for a long time. That's kind of an entrepreneur thing. And I was talking to my mom and she's like, you know, I, I didn't realize you were so financially unstable. I was like, you know, she said, are, are you super worried about it? I was like, ah, I don't know, mom. It's like making money is fun. Having it is super fun, but it's not, it doesn't make that much of a difference. And I look at like my normal morning routine. I get up and have, you know, do my yoga, walk the dogs, make my coffee. Like whether I have $30 million or nothing, that doesn't really change. And so it's this thing where you've got to make sure you have the perspective to say that it's a game. It's a super fun game to play. And, and don't get me wrong by a long shot. I would rather have it than not have it uh, when it comes to money. But it's a thing where it's like, uh, it's not really that big of a deal. 
if, if you have the right perspective. She's like, oh, you're so much like your grandfather. He had the same same kind of thing. But I think that's a, a really important part of it is that just to make it a, a super fun game and uh, the way you keep score is with, with the dollars. But um, at the end of the day, you know, whether you make it or not, you have success or not. We've had a bunch of failed businesses and a couple of successes. Um, yeah, playing the game is that's where you get the joy. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I, I, someone gave me a piece of advice. I was like, you know, very successful business that's out there is probably 10 in the graveyard. Um, and you're yeah. just constantly playing. You're constantly learning. Just like, you know, yep. maybe trying and going to do Leadville. You, you try it out. You don't have the races to go how you want to. Okay. Like you're, you're thinking like, what can I do next time? Um, and I think that that's just a lot of fun with it. And I've been, I've been sure. loving a lot too. And uh, the brainstorming sessions that we have for our little backyard backcountry business um, is always a lot of fun. Um, but you also made me think about a quote that I heard the other day that I, was actually really, really healthy for me. Um, because I, I get into these these episodes of obsessiveness and I'll just like really like dig into something. And the quote was, life is play. And I think there's some exceptions where that doesn't necessarily always apply, but it really helped me understand my obsession, my obsessive states, because uh, I will get obsessive. And, you know, yeah. life is play. That like made me see things in this different, more happier of a perspective when I started looking at that life is play. Yep. Yep, totally. um, and I, I see that with entrepreneurship too. And one of the things that is also great about entrepreneurship is just learning from what others have done. Like there's, you reach out to people, you talk to them. Uh, it's it's just a lot of fun. It's a great ball game. Uh, so yeah. I'll uh, be this is a rad dumb podcast called My First Million. That is, you, you'll probably like that. I have. Yeah, I've listened to that. And that one yeah. inspired me, actually. Like, there's all yeah. kinds of crazy stories on there. Yep. Those guys are rad. There's a couple more. I'll send you some more links to other podcasts. But yeah, I think it's, you know, one of the joys of the whole thing is just, uh, is just like dreaming and thinking, thinking through ideas. And whether you come to an idea that's really good or you don't, you, you know, hit a dead end, you're like, ah, it actually doesn't work out. Like, the, there's a lot of fun in just uh, thinking through it. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you go about brings, say you're going to like, Hey, Hey, Brian, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to brainstorm a new business. Where do you start? How does that, um, how does that get started? Yeah. So the way that, that I do it now is I've got this partner, Max, uh, Max Gold and I, we just started working together and he was in helium as well. And he just calls me out of the blue. He's just, this guy is hilarious. Um, he'll be climbing or something. He's got his little AirPods in. He's like, Hey, I'm climbing. So if I fall, you're going to hear me say the F word, you know, he'll of course immediately fall and, and, and drop the bomb. He's like, but I had this idea and I'll start talking and usually I'm near a computer and I'll just start writing it down and we kind of go through it together and I'll say like, Oh, that's like, I like that thing or that part's stupid or this is good. Or I'll come back with something. And we just, I think a really important part of brainstorming is batting it back and forth with another person. Um, Cause as any, as any long distance runner knows, you can come up with an idea on a run that seems incredibly good. And you're like, how am I the only person that's ever thought of this? And then you come back and write it down and present it to someone. They're like, dude, how did you miss this part? Like, this is completely wrong. Um, so you got to have someone there to kind of bounce your ideas off of and make sure they're legit for the real world. Yeah. And that's why I do, I research with a team. I don't do research solo. Like I want to be critiqued. I want my ideas to be refined. Yeah. Uh, and so the reason I asked you that question of how do you go about getting that brainstorming process started, I kind of transfer over a little bit of my scientific training and yep. yeah, I, there's a gazillion infinite amount of ways to start your brainstorming for entrepreneur endeavors, but I always yeah. try to focus on, so with my research, 
my research field is in applied science. So we are producing objective information that can be used for decision-making. Uh, yep. It's very pragmatic. And to get to that pragmatic end result, you start with a problem. What is the problem? Like, for example, we want to predict the lapse rate uh, for paragliding. Okay, yep. how do we do that? We're going to put sensors at different elevations or altitudes and, you know, figure out, you know, what that lapse rate is like. Um, and so my research has taken a problem that's kind of a, a problem that's affecting society in a way, maybe a small sub subpopulation of society, but it's affecting society and figuring yep. out information for it. And so that problem is how I have transferred that from my scientific training to these small little entrepreneur endeavors that I'm currently doing and kind of looking at like, you know, what are some problems I can help with? For example, you know, with Gristle King, you're like, hey, there's no information out there about how to set these helium hotspots. Bam, I'm gonna provide a service, I'm gonna help people out. And that's kind of where my brainstorm is. What's a problem that I can solve to help people out? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. No, that's, that's, that's like the winning combo. And sometimes it's a problem that, that will help people, but is not particularly profitable, which is where I think a lot of this micrometeorology stuff is, but it's exciting to you. And I think that's the kind of circle back that like, you really got to follow the joy and it sounds trite. It sounds kind of silly, but like you follow the joy and you, you end up winning no matter what. Like if you build something big and it, it goes and sells for a bunch of money, great. That's cool. You were joyful the whole time. If you build something big and it was a disaster, fine. You can recover from any, anything. Um, I've gone bankrupt. Like that's not going to kill you. Uh, it's not super fun, but not going to kill you. And if you're following that joy the whole time, uh, you're more likely to, to have a win. And even if you don't, you were still joyful more often than not. So that's the that's the kind of takeaway piece for me with with entrepreneurship because the the idea of like a business being a, a complicated thing is is silly right like basically being in business is if you can buy it for one and sell it for two you're in business right yeah. like, like it's not much more complex than that um, it's all the execution pieces behind it that that go into it yeah well your explanation before as cliche as it sounded it's cliche for a reason yeah. Um, and it made me think of, so I, I started reading, uh, Yvonne Chouinard's book about Patagonia. I forget what the title even is like our people go surfing or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Let my people go surfing. There you go. Thank you. I don't know the title of the book I'm reading. <laughs> let our people go surfing. And man, he did it out of joy. You know, it started yeah. off with Chouinard equipment and he's just making different pieces of metal for rock climbing. And it was to help them and his friends and only his friends go rock climbing. Like they were just yep. like stoked on rock climbing. And so he had the joy in that and keeping that joy going, um, you know, that it's obviously got to transform as you scale, probably, you know, Patagonia scaled up really, you know, to a big, he's not, he's not hammering out pitons anymore. Although he might be, he's just not hammering out for sale. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I hope he is. I mean, he seems yeah. like the type of guy that just loves, you know, like just hammering pitons out just for the, the pleasure of it, right? Yeah. Like he yeah, seems yeah. like that type of guy who is bringing joy to the work he's doing because he loves it. It's part of his passion and whatnot. And I think like, yeah, as you said earlier, it might be cliche to follow your passion and do that for, you know, whatever endeavor you want to do next, but heck, that's going to make it joyful. And that's what, yeah. you know, life is play. Enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. <laughs> All right. Sorry to get super philosophical on you. Uh, but hey, Nick, it's been great seeing you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come chat. Um, you got me really excited about helium hotspots. Um, I feel like they got some uses in my research, maybe my personal life, and maybe I can help the sure. local farmers out here. Uh, so I really appreciate you sharing all that information. And hey, man, next time in San Diego, we got to get together. 
uh, come hang out. Oh, one more thing. Do you, and I don't think you do. I visited your house one time. You had me over for dinner and you had, did you have a dog named Bird or Birdie? Birdie, yeah. Birdie, okay. I currently have a dog named Birdie. Okay. Your Birdie passed the baton to my Birdie. Yeah, 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 yeah. She she moved on last summer. Okay, uh, we we lost her, but that's I mean that's dogs. It's like they're just these bundles of joy, and you get them for a finite amount of time, and you got to love them while they're here, and that's it. That's what you get. Well, so, your birdie's yeah. love is definitely in my birdie's soul because my birdie is just a love fest. She's a uh, she's a boxer, and she's just a fantastic dog. Really, Hell yeah. really love yeah. her a lot, and she's just so easy going. I mean, and she just follows. She's my shadow and follows me yep. around and. If I snap oh, at something, she knows exactly what I want. I mean, she just reads my body language. It's it's good dog and a Dog's great name too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good one. Good work there. <laughs> All right, Nick, I'm going to throw in some outro music. Thanks again, bud. Ripping. Thanks, dog.